I come from a family of cops. My father was a NYPD detective. My brother was a homicide detective. All my cousins and, and relatives are all state troopers and police officers. And, and I was always made to believe that you know, the law is kind of the bedrock set of, of rules that we all agree to live by. That's how we get along as a society. That's how we get along with each other. And now I'm learning the law is a weapon. It's like a knife or a gun or a pipe or shiv. And whoever uses that weapon the most effectively is going to win the case. And the laws, that's all the law is. And it really caused a, a great deal of existential angst in me to know that this thing that I'd grown up to believe uh, was a lie. Welcome to the seventh episode of Doctors and Litigation, The L Word, a podcast for physicians where you'll hear the truth about medical malpractice litigation and its impact on our lives. Today, we're going to talk about medical experts, the role they have in the litigation system, and the impact that false or misleading expert testimony plays in litigation stress for the individual defendant physician. You heard a little bit about it in episode three with Dr. V's story. When I read his testimony, I mean, it literally made me want to vomit. Just the hyperbole that he spoke with was nauseating. And it, I had to stop multiple times while reading this testimony, basically just dropping F-bombs at the words that he was using. That expert divulged at trial that he makes about $300,000 every year providing medical expert testimony on top of his full-time job as a physician. There are indeed physicians who have made millions upon millions of dollars providing medical expert testimony over their careers. And not to paint them all with the same brush, but certainly among them are hired guns who it seems will say almost anything to make a buck. Remember that most malpractice cases do not actually involve malpractice. The grand majority of cases are closed without any payment to the plaintiff on behalf of the physician whatsoever. And of the 7 to 10% that go to trial, the physician wins in over 80% of those cases. But none of these cases can go forward without a medical expert to say that there was indeed malpractice in the first place. And here is where we have a problem. When you are on the receiving end of exaggerated, misleading, or unethical testimony from someone making inordinate sums of money for their so-called expert opinion who has virtually no one to answer to, and you are nearly powerless to say or do anything about it for years, it can make you pretty angry. Which brings me back to the doctor you heard at the beginning of this podcast. I've been sued five times, and each time I've been sued, I've learned something from the case. No more so than the first case. Uh, I remember the case. I remember every detail about the case. I'm a medical toxicologist by training, and this was a poisoning case. This is Dr. M, an experienced physician and director of toxicology at his institution, who one night took care of a 60-year-old man who came in bleeding. He was on nine different cardiac medications, including warfarin. He went to a dentist to have some scaling and deep cleaning done, and the dentist put him on erythromycin as an antibiotic. So anybody who knows anything about warfarin and erythromycin know that there's a very pronounced drug-drug interaction where erythromycin interferes with the metabolism of the warfarin, and so this guy wound up warfarin poisoned. He started bleeding at home uh, he, until the point where he collapsed. 
came into my ER. He collapsed again in triage, and uh, I took care of this poor guy. I, I threw everything in the kitchen sink at this guy. Fresh frozen plasma, um, whole blood, type-specific blood, saline, vitamin K, everything I could think of to try to reverse. I even called in a dentist. Uh, we had an on-call dental resident, and I called him in. And I said, well, you know, a dentist got him into this problem. Maybe a dentist can help get him out. So the dental resident came in and said, there was really nothing I can do except pack his gums, um, which he did. And uh, these were, this is back in 2007 before the, um, you know, the prothrombin complex concentrates were widely available. And so we, I did everything I possibly could to stabilize the guy. And I thought I did stabilize him, uh, considering that his, his initial INR was greater than 100. His initial PT was unmeasurable. It was just the guy was so, you know, had such a severe coagulopathy. So packed him up, got him up to the ICU in a, in a relatively stable condition at 4 a.m. And the guy died at 7 a.m. three hours later, just a massive GI bleed. At the time that he died, his, his repeat PT was normal. We were successful in, in reversing his coagulopathy, but it was just too late for the poor guy. Subsequently, Dr. M was named in a medical malpractice suit alleging wrongful death. It's important to note that the dentist who actually prescribed the erythromycin without regard to the warfarin was not named in this suit. As unfortunate as he felt the patient's outcome was, Dr. M felt his care in the case had been excellent, and he had wanted to fight this case to the end. But here's how it went down instead. The plaintiff's attorney was a member of a very politically powerful family here. He was, he was the brother of a U.S. senator or the son of a former governor. A very, very politically powerful family. And that plays into how this whole thing shakes out, because finally when this thing came to trial, it, it went all the way to trial. Uh, about two weeks before the trial, I got a call from my attorney saying, we're never going to win this case. Dr. M was very confident in his care in this case, and so he had been optimistic about a trial ending in his favor. But as we've seen before, there are often other factors at play that decide how a case ultimately turns out. I said, what are you talking about? The, the trial hasn't even started yet. And he said, yeah, I know, but... But the attorney had just found out who the judge assigned to the case was and realized that they were likely sunk because of it. The assigned judge had run for a state appellate court position several years before and lost his bid and was still unhappy in his current role in the Court of Common Pleas. However, a new state appellate court position had recently opened up and it was no secret that he wanted it. This judge had made it very, very clear that he wanted to get that spot. And so my lawyer turned to me and said, if you think that this judge is going to let this particular attorney from a very politically powerful family lose this case, you're crazy. So here we are. Dr. M had not been the one to cause this patient's problem, and he had done everything possible in trying to correct it. And now he was the defendant in a case where his own counsel says they'll likely lose because the assigned judge would favor the plaintiff. We'll talk in a later podcast about trial and how judges' rulings can influence case outcomes, but... For Dr. M, this was really hard to swallow. I said, how is that possible? How, how, how could that be? I mean, we haven't even got, we haven't, the trial haven't even started yet. You're telling me we lost because some ambitious judge doesn't want to annoy a, a politically connected attorney? How, how th this isn't right. This has got nothing to do with, with the patient or his coagulopathy or what I did. It's got nothing to do with any of that. 
And this is when Dr. M comes to the realization you heard in the beginning of this podcast, that the law, which he once held in such esteem, is merely a weapon, and that what he did or did not do in this case did not seem to matter. And as it turned out, we went to trial, and uh, I was put on the witness stand, and I got beaten up for five hours, and I, I thought I got a couple of good licks in. And when it was all over, there was some sort of a deal made uh, late at night, and when I showed up the next morning for the trial, I was uh, said, oh, they settled, so you're off the hook, we got them to drop you, uh, so you've been dropped with prejudice, and so they can't bring you back, and uh, go home, have a great day. As it turns out, though, Dr. M did not go home and have a great day. I spent the, you know, the, the several days after the trial, I, you know, I just, just, um, we have a little sunroom in our, just off our kitchen. And I had uh, decided to try to redo the floor. And so I literally spent three days just, just laying down tile, pulling it up again, laying it down, pulling it up, laying it down, pulling it up for, for three days and three nights. You know, I didn't sleep, I didn't eat, I didn't bathe. <laughs> I just spent three days and three nights just, just you know, laying tile and grout and then, and then just saying, no, it's not, it's not right. It's not perfect. I got And I pulled it up and, and told finally my wife, my wife uh, saw what was happening and said, I, I got to get you out of here. And so she uh, rented a beach house and, and took me and the kids and out to the beach and just to get away from it all. And we, we spent a week at the beach and it was the best thing she could have done because by the time I got back, at least I was able to, you know, begin to, to interact with them again. Dr. M went through many of the emotions that we've talked about in previous podcasts. And again, please do go back and listen to them if you have not gone in order. It took a long time for him to start to feel like himself again, but there was one thing that he just couldn't let go, and that was the testimony of the expert in his trial. The uh, expert witness in the first case, she was she's the director of an academic emergency department. She submitted her expert report, which was full of exaggerations and lies and, and mischaracterizations. She subsequently gave a videotaped deposition that was to be used in court during trial. Dr. M felt that this was also full of lies and mischaracterizations. And after the trial was over, Dr. M took matters into his own hands. After the case was over, I managed to get my, my hands on those uh, videotapes. It was on a couple of CD-ROMs. And then I spent the next few weeks making about 100 copies on my little home computer. I made about 100 copies of her videotape deposition, as well as Xeroxing all the copies of her deposition. It was like a 400-page deposition, uh, as well as her expert witness uh, statement. And then I mailed copies of all these things to all the, you know, the, the people that she works with, all her fellow ER people in this hospital, the board of directors of her hospital, uh, everybody that I could think of that knew her, that knew her professionally. And I said, uh, if you agree with what she said, well, then please call me so we can have a talk about this. I said, if you disagree with what she said or her characterizations of my care, then why don't you confront her and ask her why she would say these things about another ER doc? So I actually got a phone call from uh, somebody from her, the board of directors of her hospital who said, yeah, we're taking this really seriously. We're going to look into this. And so I know that they slapped her on the wrist. They told her she's not allowed to use the, um, the stationery of her hospital anymore whenever she does her expert witness testimony. And uh, then I filed an ethics complaint against her with ASAP. 
It turns out that this expert was one of those physicians I mentioned earlier who made boatloads of money off of her expert witness work each year. In fact, she was the plaintiff's expert in three different lawsuits against people in my own department. Imagine that. She was simultaneously helping plaintiffs sue three different doctors in the same group at one time. She later stated that she had as many as 50 expert witness cases going at any given time. And though that's not breaking any laws or ethical codes, when her testimony was finally submitted to the American College of Emergency Physicians for review, it was found to be unethical, misleading testimony. And forgive me if I say it's hard to believe that it was just in this one case that her testimony was egregious. In fact, eventually, due to more than one complaint and additional findings of ethics violations, she was suspended from the professional organization. And this matters. That's important because that gets reported to the National Practitioner Database. It put a, a pretty effective dent in her ability to, uh, to do this anymore. I know that, that the lawyer that had hired her, he no longer uses her because of this. However, there's nothing keeping her out of the game. Maybe once a year I get a phone call from a lawyer somewhere in the country that she's trying to get back into the business. So, as you'll hear again, there are often no restrictions on physicians who can testify as experts, which is frankly maddening. There should be. But I'm not necessarily advocating for exactly Dr. M's strategy. In his own words, it became fairly consuming. Came really, really close to taking out a billboard above her hospital and printing the, uh, I'm a little nuts, you know. A lot of physicians also have concerns about winding up a defendant again in a civil suit for libel or what's called tortious interference with contractual relations. In other words, getting in the way of someone's business contracts. And after all, as we've established, anyone can sue for pretty much anything. But there really is something about this particular brand of betrayal of these unethical witnesses that generates very significant anger in defendant physicians who have been wronged. You know, I think the hardest thing was was not being able to interject and, you know, not being able to yell out when I felt that their expert was blatantly misrepresenting standard of care. And you have to sort of fight those emotions. And there's so much to unpack here that I'm actually dividing this topic of expert witnesses into two podcasts. So in part one today, we're going to talk about the role of medical experts and why they are necessary in our current system, but also how they are one of the largest drivers of unfounded litigation in the United States. We'll talk about the ethics of malpractice expert work and how most physicians in this arena have no training whatsoever in best practices for that role, no certification, no oversight, and often no consequences when they knowingly provide false or misleading testimony. Even physicians who outright lie, who perjure themselves, may only get a slap on the wrist, even if the defendant physician goes through all sorts of hoops to call them out on it that expert will still walk away with thousands upon thousands of dollars from any one given case. We'll talk about why the feeling of being betrayed by a fellow physician who fuels cases with false testimony is so particularly painful, and what the consequences of that pain and rage can be if not properly managed. And in both this podcast and the next, we're going to hear from physicians who have walked both sides as defendant and expert and how they set their mindset in order to provide ethical, fair testimony for both defense and plaintiff's attorneys. 
In our next podcast, I'm finally going to talk about my own case and the role that unethical expert witness testimony played in fueling my own decisions to start this project. And we'll hear from additional experts about the best ways to go about seeking justice if you feel you've been wronged by medical expert testimony. So let's get to work. This would be a good time to talk about why we really do need expert witnesses in our current system. It is absolutely true, as I have said before on this podcast, that some plaintiffs have truly been harmed by medical negligence and medical error, and they should have restitution. I am actually quite familiar with the pain of having a family member who was the recipient of substandard medical care. I know what it feels like to want to sue someone. And so does this physician, Dr. E, who was the plaintiff, the plaintiff, in a case against a neurosurgeon. Now, I'm not going to go into all of the details of this case, but it's painful to listen to, and definitely a reminder that there are patients, even physician patients, with justified grievances. Dr. E was harmed by a neurosurgeon, who it also turns out was committing fraud, but that's besides the point, and Dr. E spoke with me about why ethical medical experts are so important. Really, there's two sides of a malpractice trial, and we really don't take the time to look at the other side. Someone on the other side feels that they have been uh, injured. They feel that the physician was the cause of their injury, and they just want to be whole. And he needed an ethical expert who was able to testify for the plaintiff's attorney. The plaintiff's attorney relies on medical experts to say whether or not a case has merit. You have this innate hatred towards malpractice lawyers. You don't, you know, you feel that they may, they may do some unethical things. And now I found myself in a position where I actually needed a malpractice lawyer. So I had this mix of emotion. Yes, I need him. Um, I hate him. And I had all these, these strange feelings that it took me, you know, a very long time to, uh, to get over. We tend to blame malpractice attorneys for uh, what they do, but we have to understand a malpractice attorney cannot work and go through trial independently of an expert witness. A, a lot of these uh, malpractice trials go through because the plaintiff or the defendant finds a uh, expert witness who's also a physician. When a case does have merit, it's very important for there to be unbiased physician experts who will testify on behalf of patients who have been harmed. It's an important part of our system. Now, they may shop around a bit, but if they couldn't find an expert that agreed that there was malpractice, the case couldn't go forward. Unfortunately, even in cases without merit, they can usually find someone. The way our current legal system is designed uh, for medical malpractice, expert witnesses, so-called expert witnesses, are required to educate the judge and jury about details about medicine that an average layperson wouldn't know or have any reason to know or ability necessarily to evaluate. These so-called expert witnesses are almost uniformly hated and feared by physicians. And this is, is both because we know from even looking at their CVs and their online presence that many of them really are not experts. They're doctors who can't do anything else because they've been fired or because they're uh, retired or you know no longer are practicing and need a source of income or whatever. That's Louise Andrew, MD, JD, whom you've heard from in previous podcasts. And I'll remind you that she is a founder of the Coalition and Center for Ethical Medical Testimony. She spoke to me about why being on the receiving end of unethical or misleading testimony is so very painful. They are ostensibly our colleagues. 
They are people that we, you know, may have learned from. You know, my first expert witness experience was with one of the faculty in my own program, acting as an expert witness on behalf of the plaintiff against one of my classmates in the residency who had done nothing wrong. Imagine that. Now, you'd think that that would be a really isolated incident, but this is a dirty business. And this person was, you know, what what sometimes are called a test liar or worse, but he's not the only one by any means. So, because of the betrayal factor, many defendant physicians place the blame for malpractice existing solely on expert witnesses. The anger at the betrayal and at the parasite factor. I mean, these physicians are making bank off of misrepresenting medicine, cashing in giant checks while they cause you years of pain and anguish. It's a pretty human thing to let this eat at you. And this can become all-consuming, even dangerously so. A, a doctor who is under siege from a case ha, has a very strong compulsion to intellectually disempower that expert. Um, many of the same ways that you might, you know, for example, try to disempower a colleague that you think is incompetent by reporting them to a superior or threatening to report them to their medical board. Uh, you know, ways that may or may not be healthy in that situation, but in the expert witness situation, they're incredibly dangerous. And the reason is because, as I said, the, the malpractice system depends on the existence of expert witnesses to educate the judge and jury. And if they are not available and willing to serve, then there could be no malpractice system, which from the standpoint of lawyers and judges <laughs> would not be a good thing. So the law builds in incredible protections for expert witnesses. They're almost unassailable. Almost, It's almost impossible to get back at them. Um, but if you don't know that, and if you're hit by a very dishonest one who is ruining your life by, you know, helping a case to be brought against you that looks like it might be successful, there's an impulse to do whatever you can to get back at them. Now, we're not violent people. But we're not necessarily going to turn the other cheek either. But that desire for retribution can lead to really unwanted consequences. We'll talk in the next podcast about avenues that you might consider safely pursuing, but I want to make the point very early that you absolutely cannot start any of these proceedings at all until your case is 100% completed. And yes, that means most likely waiting years and years for justice, but that is how it has to be because of these protections for witnesses. The frustration physicians feel in this situation compounds all the other negative emotions that we talked about in previous podcasts, contributing greatly to litigation stress and malpractice stress syndrome. The coping strategies and support resources that we talked about in episode four are crucial. It is critical that you anticipate these emotions and manage them while understanding the legal constraints that you are under at this time. We have seen very unfortunate cases where physicians try to take matters into their own hands during a case. Here is one such tragic case. And a warning up front, it ends in physician suicide. In this case and in a few others that I've heard about, the defendant made the mistake of going to the department chair of the university where the expert witness was employed and reporting that his testimony was indefensible. 
And this happened during the pendency of the trial. So the, the, the case was not settled. It was still going on. And you know, there are a lot of things you can do after a trial. And we've done, I've done whole lectures and certainly there's, I've written things about what you can do at that point. But while the trial is still going on, you cannot do this. It's called expert witness tampering. And the law will deal with you very, very harshly. It can actually lead to criminal charges. So you can go from a civil case involving malpractice to a criminal case now involving medical expert witness tampering or witness intimidation. And in in this particular case, when the expert witness reported to the court, to the judge, that uh, his employer had been informed about this and that that was a form of expert witness tampering, the judge basically said, okay, you defendant, your confidential communications with your own lawyer are now wide open and therefore there's no way that you're going to defend this case, so you might as well just settle. And he did, although it was a totally defensible case. In fact, it was almost an indefensible prosecution, but he had to settle. That was just something he couldn't intellectually deal with. And this is hard to hear, but his story needs to be told. This physician, named Dr. Tickton, was described by his director as a compassionate and competent doctor who had not incurred a single patient complaint in his years at the hospital. And he died by a self-inflicted gunshot wound two days after the settlement. He was 44. He left a note that said, quote, I cannot live with the injustice of this situation. Hopefully my death will help to shed light on the problem of dishonest expert witnesses and judges unwilling to scrutinize cases more carefully and toss the ridiculous ones. Our system, as it's currently structured, cannot operate without medical experts. And frivolous cases or cases with no actual medical negligence can only go forward when there are medical experts to support them. In other words, we physicians are actually our own worst enemies. We are the predators, the cannibals that allow unfair litigation to proceed. Don't you think we should be doing something about it? Let's start with this. What does it take to be an ethical medical expert? Is it even possible to be impartial when you're paid more to do expert work than you are to be a physician? After all, if you give the attorney a review of the case that's favorable to them, they're likely to hang on to you for the remainder of the case, which could mean more things to review and more billable hours for you. You may even wind up testifying at trial which can lead to several, even tens of thousands of dollars for a single day, plus expenses. And if your willingness to testify or even win for your side is publicized, even just among attorneys, it means more business and more income for you in the future. It even permeates academics. There is no duty to report expert witness income. There's no Sunshine Act for taking money to testify. Let's face it, you have virtually no idea which of your colleagues is doing expert work. It's even more hush-hush than litigation. 
So it's become apparent that some experts who regularly testify in certain subject areas, let's say stroke, for instance, also publish low-bar online articles or op-eds or tweet on social media with overly emphatic statements and non-evidence-based opinions that they can then refer to in future testimony as their quote-unquote unbiased opinion. It legitimizes their exaggerated testimony. It fuels them being hired again. It helps attorneys find them. It taints everything. But seriously, in this setting, blinded by dollar signs at almost no risk if you just phrase your over-exaggerated opinions just so, as they actually teach you to do in some expert witness training conferences. In this setting, how can you be impartial? How can you stay morally and ethically centered? A 2009 paper by B. Sunny Bal, MD, MBA, in the Journal of Clinical Orthopedics and Related Research, entitled The Expert Witness in Medical Malpractice Litigation, summarizes some of these quandaries. He cites one survey of orthopedists that revealed that 75% believed expert witness testimony contributed to an increase in medical malpractice litigation, and at the same time, 58% had testified as experts in medical malpractice cases. He also notes literature that even among physicians trying to do their very best to be impartial, there's a great deal of variation in hindsight review of cases. Physicians usually don't have any rubric or standardized criteria on which to base their opinions, and even in structured chart reviews with practice guidelines, there's poor agreement among physicians as to whether or not there was any fault on the part of the physician. And that's among physicians trying to be ethical and impartial. Now imagine getting paid tens of thousands of dollars by one side. It doesn't take a genius to think about what might happen there, even to an initially well-intentioned physician. Now add to that this large pool of testaliers, as Dr. Andrew called them, this vast trove of hired guns that advertise their services on websites, or that plaintiff's attorneys keep in databases for hire. And we can virtually guarantee that there will be a well-paid physician expert for any case, all too happy to cash a check without any regard to what their testimony does to defendant physicians. Both plaintiffs and defense organizations maintain registries and collections of expert witness testimony. And that physician expert doesn't even need to be an actual expert. I thought it was ironic that the main expert witness was someone who didn't even have as much experience as I did, I felt. In some states, such as Rhode Island, where I live, you don't even need to practice in the same specialty as the defendant to opine on how they didn't meet the standard of care. For instance, in my first trial, a hematologist testified against me, an emergency physician. This hematologist from Yale actually claimed to be board certified, but it turned out he was not. And that happens more often than you would think. So I look into this guy's background, and I read over his testimony, and he claimed that he was board certified in emergency medicine. So I contacted the American Board of Emergency Medicine, and lo and behold, he wasn't a diplomat. Clearly, some very unethical stuff. But let's get back to how to be an ethical witness. Most physician professional societies now have codes of ethics for physician experts. For instance, I'm a member of the American College of Emergency Physicians, and they have a code of ethics for medical expert testimony. However, 
even though experts often point to their membership or their work for ASAP on their CV as a sign of their fitness for duty as experts, many of them are unaware or simply willfully disregard these ethical standards. There are far too many charlatans in the field, and uh, I have been the victim of two in, in the cases that I was involved in. A survey of members of the college in 2010 about medical legal topics demonstrated that over 60% of respondents did not know these standards in fact existed. In fact, in my first trial, the emergency medicine expert witness was from Canada and had never once practiced medicine in the United States. He pointed to his status as a reviewer for ASAP's flagship journal as evidence of his expertise. And yet, when my attorney inquired whether he was familiar with ASAP's expert witness guidelines, he simply said he was not aware of them, which was convenient for him because the very first guideline was that a physician testifying in the United States should, quote, be currently licensed in a state, territory, or area constituting legal jurisdiction of the United States as a doctor of medicine or osteopathic medicine, quote. In other words, they should be able to practice medicine in the United States. But so much for that. A report on that same survey indicated that the most frequent recurring themes in free responses were about malicious expert witness testimony and a, quote, general sense of dismay and betrayal regarding malpractice litigation. So we'll talk about this more in part two on Medical Experts, the next podcast, but many professional societies also have a way for members to bring grievances to them, to have questionable testimony evaluated, as we talked about in Dr. M's case. Professional society sanctions can lead to some consequences for the physician, such as private or public censure, temporary suspension from the professional organization, or possible permanent expulsion from it. Some societies will report suspension or expulsion to the National Practitioner Data Bank. A few state medical boards will consider licensure restrictions in extreme cases, but that's pretty rare. There is some degree of murkiness over whether state boards even have jurisdiction. Is giving expert testimony tantamount to practicing medicine? The answer to that has not yet been made clear. But in any case, there's no real oversight of testimony unless another physician brings up a grievance. And there's no real training or standardized impartial certification. There is a self-styled certifying body. It seems to be purely, you know, monetarily based. So there is no formal training, except what little formal training there is, is it seems to me, from what I've seen, mostly aimed at how to fool the court, not how to do it ethically, but how to fool the court, how to foolproof your testimony, et cetera, et cetera, and largely is run by plaintiffs, though not exclusively. But most experts don't get trained in any specific way as to what they're supposed to do or how they can do it ethically. And they're trained by the lawyer, be it defense or plaintiff, who is an advocate for one side or the other. And an advocate's job is to advocate, not to keep everyone on the ethical pathway. So they don't necessarily tell the experts what the court requires. Even such a basic thing as what constitutes the standard of care is often not shared with potential expert witness because, you know, obviously the lawyer, whichever side they're on, wants the expert witness to say, oh, yes, the standard of care demands this or the standard of care was met because that. And it's easier to do that if they don't know what the standard of care actually is. Okay, so let's recap. 
the current status of training physician experts on whom this whole system relies is that they are trained by the attorneys that hire them. There's no formal impartial professional society training or residency training. You pick it up on the fly, and if you're taught anything or you go to a course, it's on how to spin your testimony one way or another. Does that seem right to you? Because it doesn't to me. We need educators in this space. Best practices. Dr. Andrews certainly doing her part. I have taught ethical advocacy principles to a number of medical specialty societies. And uh, we know from a survey that I did within ASEP that ASEP members are quite interested in this kind of training too, but it hasn't, to my knowledge, happened yet. I wrote an article that's um, about ethical principles of being an expert witness in the emergency medicine clinics in North America. And I would encourage anyone who's interested to read it and actually to do it. We need honest experts. So don't feel that it's a bad thing to be an expert witness, but it is a terribly bad thing to be an expert witness if you don't know what your ethical obligations are. So it's not a bad thing to be a medical expert. It's a bad thing to be a bad medical expert. It's a bad thing to be an unethical medical expert. We need people who get into this for the right reasons and then who stay ethically and morally centered and help us develop teaching and policies to keep all of us on the right path. Those who serve as medical experts either went into the business because they realized it was very enormously profitable sometimes, or in my own case, um, I became interested when a lawyer called me. This is the lawyer <laughs> representing my classmate who said, you know, would you be an expert witness on his behalf, given that your faculty member is on the other side? And I said, you know, heck yes. Uh, tell me how to do it. In fact, many experts come into it because they had been defendants or witness to unfair litigation in the past and they want to do better. And physicians who have been defendants or plaintiffs have some hard-won wisdom to bring with them to the table. Here's Dr. L. You've heard his voice in previous podcasts. My feeling was that um, I had to put my head on the pillow at night, and if, if what I said wasn't the truth, then I would never be able to testify again. And here's Dr. E., who now also does medical expert review work. I would say, don't do it for the money. Do it because you truly believe that this patient was injured and they deserve some type of compensation for their injury. Sometimes expert witnesses, and I can't speak for all expert witnesses, but you get caught up in a situation where you must be slanted to one side versus another. And obviously there's some money that's involved and that definitely can slant the way you think about the case. If you really truly believe that the case is valid, then you do it, but you don't do it for the money. Once you start doing it for the money, then you know that's when you get a lot of the ethical uh, the issues that come up. You've got to guard yourself against the temptations of the money and also from letting the attorney on whatever side you're on dictate what the truth really is or what your testimony should be. It's your medical license, not theirs. It's your expertise, not theirs. You are not there to win a case. You are there to tell the truth. You have a bad result. It doesn't mean that there is malpractice. One of the most egregious cases that I remember getting from an attorney was somebody who came in with meningitis. Everything was done appropriately. The guy died the next day. So the attorney says to me, well, this is a, uh, a bell ringer case for us. I said, no, it's not. People die. People die even if everything appropriate was done. He said, but the guy died. I said, yes, people die. 
and then he 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 didn't accept that as a uh, an answer for me. And then he sent me a report that allegedly I had written, and he just asked me to sign it. I said, I'm sorry, you don't have enough money to pay me to do that. For now, until things change, and I hope they do change, physicians mostly have to rely on their own internal compass of morals and ethics to keep them testifying honestly. And I apologize to you if you're listening to this and you are an expert witness who has actual expertise and uses it for the good of the system to benefit plaintiffs who have been harmed and physicians who have been falsely accused. We need more of you. But as you've heard, and as you may have even experienced yourself, there are a lot of experts out there who are not behaving ethically. We need more oversight. We need consequences with teeth. But until then, I am now appealing to all experts to please stick to the ethical guidelines. Your professional society likely has them. I'd like to run through a few of them now, even though they seem elementary. And maybe it's just to make myself feel better, but bear with me. I'm taking some of these from Dr. Andrews' paper, which she mentioned, as well as the ASAP ethical guidelines, which Dr. Andrews actually helped craft. I think they're pretty generalizable. They might best be summarized by just saying that you should stick to the golden rule of testifying. Testify unto others as you would have them testify unto you. In other words, be fair. But here's a few more granular ones. First, and now you know why this matters to me, to testify as an expert in the United States on the standard of care in the United States you should actually be licensed to practice medicine in the United States. Next, if you testify as an expert, you should be an experienced expert. ASEP's guidelines are to have practiced for at least three years and be board eligible or board certified, and frankly, I think that's a little lax, but that's their standard. But please, do not overstate your expertise. Next, never accept a situation where your pay depends on the outcome of the case. Now this one is super important. It's pretty obvious that you shouldn't lie. You shouldn't deliberately mislead. But you also, and this happens a lot, you also should not overstate. You should not slant your language the way these expert witness coaching courses teach you to. You should not be cagey in how you phrase answers to questions in a way to help your side. Maybe you shouldn't even think of yourself as being on a side. Your side is the side of medicine and the truth. Next, you should take the time required to really understand the chart and the case, because sometimes the first glance doesn't actually tell the story fully. Um, I remember looking at cases that seemed obviously slam dunk malpractice, but when you look into the medicine, when you look at the details, you realize, you know what? This wasn't malpractice. It just looks like malpractice. On the flip side, I looked at cases that did not look like they were malpractice. They were so subtle. And then you look at the details in those cases and you're like, wow, this, this doctor messed up. Uh, he made a mistake and there was a bad outcome, sometimes even leading to a patient's death. So uh, at face value, it's very difficult to tell whether it's a, uh, a valid case or not. A corollary to this is that bad charting does not equal malpractice. You can probably spend some time with the orders, results, ancillary notes to figure out how things went, as well as sometimes read the defendant's deposition, 
Wait to judge a case until you know as much as you actually can about the case. Your opinion should not be decided on face value or optics. A lot of litigation is, but your opinion shouldn't be. Next, remember that you will be biased by hindsight. Please do not hold physicians to the crystal ball standard. As much as you can put yourself in the shoes of the physician going forward, if you think you might have missed the same things as that doctor or done the same things as that doctor, maybe it's not malpractice. Do you remember Dr. V's case in episode three? Here's what he had to say. I've had the benefit of sitting on peer review committees and I have done a lot of QA work in the past. And so I know what it's like to review someone else's work and then and critique it. And, you know, I always think in the back of my head, what if I was the guy that was seeing that patient with this busy ER and, and is what this doctor did reasonable? And when the lawyers are preparing you, they're basically telling you that you don't have to be God's gift to doctors, you have to be reasonable. And that's what you're being held accountable to, is what you did reasonable. Is it considered within the standard? And the expert testimony, that's not the standard that they're using. They're using what would happen in an ideal world and under ideal circumstances. And really what makes an expert witness really valuable for a plaintiff is if they're able to embellish and make it sound like, despite your treatment being reasonable, that you could have done things so much better. And they speak in that way when they're giving their deposition that, had he even, you know, gotten off his butt and listened carefully to this murmur and actually taken the time, he would have recognized that this was a diastolic murmur, not a systolic murmur. And that would have prompted a whole different paradigm and this patient would be alive today. They don't acknowledge what's reasonable. They only point out what could have been done better. And they basically say that what could have been done better is the standard. Remember, the standard is reasonable, not perfect. Next. I know I said before that you shouldn't misrepresent things, but I want to say again, do not misrepresent a bad outcome or a malocurrence as malpractice. They are not the same thing. Finally, and this is my add-on, don't blame systems problems on doctors. Blame the system. If it wasn't in the doctor's power to change the outcome, don't blame them. If they had no agency to make things better in this particular case, don't blame them. Just don't do it. Remember that your testimony has power, and that power has ripple effects. You should take it just as seriously as you take your oath to do no harm. We need medical experts. We need good ones for both sides. Plaintiffs who have been harmed need physicians to call out true malpractice when it occurs. But defendant physicians are human beings too, and they should not be preyed upon so that you can get a fat check. Your integrity should be worth more than that. And next month... We'll get to part two on medical experts. You're gonna hear expert witness testimony from my own trial, and we'll talk to Dr. Andrew and other experts on experts. 
on what you can do once your case is completed to fight back against unethical or misleading testimony. And that reminds me, we're going to get back to the story of Dr. M because guess what? He wasn't done yet. Until next time.